Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, March 5th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys, so Peter is out, uh, but it's time to do the water cooler without him. Uh, let's just dive right into what we've been doing. I suppose I'll kick things off. I This must have been about a week ago now. I saw the L.A. touring version of Escape to Margaritaville, which is a musical that is, uh, I guess, centered around the songs of Jimmy Buffett. I'm curious, before I even go any further, do any of you have a, a relationship with Jimmy Buffett's music. Do, do we have any uh, parrot heads on the podcast here? I think it's totally fine. If a song comes on the radio, I will not be mad, but I'm not a parrot head, no. Okay. I am pretty sure I only know those two famous Jimmy Buffett songs, and that's it. Okay. All right. Uh, my family grew up as, like, massive Jimmy Buffett fans. Like, my, my dad has been a fan from way back, so... Basically, his music was uh, like a a key part of the soundtrack of my childhood. So, um, my Florida, wife... right, Ben? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's probably a big part of it too. Um, so, my wife and I got these. You've probably noticed uh, over the previous water cooler episodes, I've been talking about going to Broadway shows a lot. This is not something that I normally do, but my wife and I uh, we saw Hamilton here in LA whenever that was, uh, 2018 maybe. And um, Hamilton is actually coming back to Los Angeles, I think it's next week. And so when they announced that, my wife and I decided to buy, like, the season pass to all of the, uh, I guess, Broadway shows that are going to be coming to L.A. so we could get early access to buy Hamilton tickets because we barely got tickets last time and we, went, we really wanted to see it again and wanted to make sure that we could secure those tickets. So anyway, uh, that's why we've been going to a lot of lackluster Broadway shows recently. <laughs> um, but uh, Escape to Margaritaville is... Oh boy, it is the most lackluster of them all. I regretted almost every second of this. I know that um, I think Frank Marshall, who was like a you know super famous producer, he produced a ton of Spielberg's movies and a lot of you know classics in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, and he's like one of the big names in Hollywood producing. I think his name is on this. Uh, man, this thing is a, a total disaster. I, I want to say. Um, that it's the worst adaptation of anything in any medium that I've ever seen, and I, I've I've given that <laughs> I've, I've given that quite a bit of thought, and I think that's accurate. Um, I, I know Jimmy Buffett's music pretty well. The way that it's employed in this thing is um, 
is really nothing short of disastrous. It is, uh, <laughs> like, the, the story is, um, just painfully bad, and the way that, uh, the music is incorporated is, uh, is really, really awful. Like, I, I thought, okay, Escape to Margaritaville, I don't know, it's probably gonna be a little, um, a little cheesy, but at least I'll be able to enjoy the music because that's the part of, you know, that that's the part I know, basically. Uh, and they change the lyrics to so many of the songs to fit, to sort of awkwardly fit this story that they're telling that uh, it became not really fun to listen to the music because they take away the lyric, they alter lyrics and they, they only play certain sections of songs and not the full song. So it's not even like you really get like a, a full on concert experience. Um, which is definitely something that you do get in shows like uh, Rock of Ages, for example, which is like another sort of like jukebox musical kind of thing. So, oh man, I was very, very disappointed in this. I'm not going to go on any further because it feels like, you know, beating a dead horse, but uh, Escape to Margaritaville, even if you're a Jimmy Buffett fan, I would say stay very, very far away from this. So, uh, Jacob, what have you been up to? Hopefully something a little bit more uh, entertaining than that. Uh, a little bit. Um I was gone for a few days last week. I was visiting a film set, uh, but f- this is the first time I visited a film set where I was able to drive to it uh, living in Texas uh, because I visited a film set in Dallas, which is three hours from me. And uh, I don't want to talk too much. They didn't give us a strict embargo or anything, but I'm just going to keep it you know, quiet here. Uh, but it's a new production from Cinestate, the production company behind uh, Bone Tomahawk and uh, Stand Off Sparrow Creek. You know, very small independent movies, and um, they're trying. They they own Fangoria, uh, the magazine, and they're essentially trying to make sort of an indie Hollywood out of Dallas. Sort of like, um, essentially, you know, in the '90s, Rob Rodriguez was like, "I'm gonna make Austin into the independent Hollywood of of the Southwest," and he never did. Uh, Cinestate's kind of saying they actually do that, but in Dallas instead. And um, it's a very very intriguing, interesting uh, set visit. Um. Very interesting characters, very interesting people. Um, a lot of interesting quotes about Texas filmmaking. I'm very curious to see uh, how people react to this uh, and to the you know film, because uh, Dallas Sonnier, who runs Cine State, he's a character. He's a very he's uh, conservative by Hollywood standards. He's open about it. Uh, he's you know he produced um, Drive Across Concrete, in, in which stars Mel Gibson. They're not afraid to you know poke hornets' nests. And I feel like uh, actually sitting down and talking to him is very different than reading about like you know him online. Yeah, very, very interesting guy, very interesting conversation. I'm very curious to um, have conversations with the kind of movies they're making uh, in, in the near future. But so I'm saying watch this space because I think that Dallas could become a very interesting hub for, you know, uh, films that want to stir up, you know, um, stir things up either by doing things independently or by casting Mel Gibson in cop dramas. So we'll see. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Brad, what have you been up to? I went on vacation, and it was glorious. Uh, I mentioned on an episode earlier this week that I actually hadn't been on a legit vacation since I went on spring break my uh, junior year of college. I've been on cool work trips uh, during the decade or so that I've been doing this job, but never really able to like go and enjoy any place that I was visiting for an extended period of time because there was always work involved. So it was nice just to get away and go somewhere for a week and not have to worry about work. You know, I still checked in on stories and just read to keep up with things and Twitter and whatnot. But it was nice just to not have a schedule to get up for work and just relax, unwind and do whatever the hell I wanted for a week. And so I I went down to uh, Miami, Florida. My girlfriend basically surprised me uh, with this. She was planning it and everything. And she told me about it leading up to my birthday, which was back on February 21st. And so she got us all together. We were going with two of her friends to split uh, an Airbnb. They're another couple just to make it cheaper so we could uh, split the cost and just really uh, make a run of it. And it was, like I said, it was just great to be down there. We uh, spent several days just on the beach. It's crazy just how many beaches are in Miami. It's just a huge, long stretch of endless beaches. Um, And they're all, I learned that beaches are all kind of different as far as just like the general texture of the beach and everything like some beaches had really nice soft white sand others had a lot more pebbles and stuff in them um and but it was just nice to get in you know the ocean which was uh incredibly warm and probably the best part of the trip um i was gonna ask brad like how was the weather there because you know I, i grew up in florida sometimes actually most of the time it could be um, almost oppressively humid, but you went at a, a pretty good time in the year. So did the weather treat you okay? 
Yeah, it, it was honestly perfect. It was um, pretty much in the upper 60s to mid 70s the entire time we were there. It got into the 80s and was in, um, a little bit uncomfortably hot on the very last day when we were leaving. Uh, but pretty much every day was great for beach weather. It was a little windy some days, so it made the uh, the tide and the current a little stronger than we would have uh, liked. But it was still nice enough that we were able to go to the beach and be in the ocean for an extended period of time. And it, it only it, what's cool about being down there, too, is it rains occasionally, but it only rains for maybe like a few minutes at a time <laughs> yep. and then goes away. Like, it, it's so weird. <laughs> it was literally a, a point when we were walking to the car. It rained for like 30 seconds. And then it was done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. There's so, so many cool things to see in Miami, too. I, I went to uh, South Beach and saw uh, the real location where they shot the birdcage, or at least the exteriors for it. Um, it is a club or a hotel that's called the Carlisle. Uh, it doesn't really look how the birdcage did in, in the movie, a lot less colorful neon. Uh, but it was cool just to go to be able to see that and see the surrounding areas. Um we also went to uh, Windwood Walls, which is this really cool section in Miami that is dedicated to uh, graffiti art and murals. It's essentially an outdoor museum where they uh, every year they swap out uh, these huge canvases on the sides of like shipping containers and walls in a park, and they have all new, uh, beautiful murals ranging ranging from graffiti artists to like these realistic portraits. Um, and then they have galleries situated around them, too, where they have in, indoor artwork from, like, Shepherd Ferry and stuff like that. So they had a lot of cool uh, stuff on display there. And, it was, uh, and even in the surrounding area outside of what the area that is considered the Windwood Walls, all the walls of buildings, things like that, have just incredible art all over them. It's, it's a really cool thing to see around there. Hmm. Nice. And what else did you do? Uh, and then when I came back, um, we, we, my girlfriend and I actually forgot about this, but I had gotten... Uh, her tickets to go see Nate Bargatze, who's a stand-up comedian. He's got a, a Netflix special called The Tennessee Kid. Uh, he's hilarious, and she absolutely loves him. She's watched that special a few times uh, since moving in here, and she always laughs so hard at it. And so he was coming nearby to South Bend, Indiana, and I got uh, her tickets for Christmas, and we went to see that. It was like the day after we got back from vacation, and he was great, had a whole new hour of material and then uh, he's, he's such a laid-back kind of deadpan comedian, and for his encore, he didn't do the thing where comedians do, which is, like, basically just putting on the show of leaving the stage and then coming back for the encore. He just, just like, laid out, he was like, all right, so, you know, this, this is going to be the encore part of the show. Uh, I'm just going to do some some old jokes that you guys probably know. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go stand on the stage because there's nobody else over there. He's like, it's just me. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to stay out here. Uh, and so he's great. If you haven't watched uh, his stand-up special, it's, it's really good. Um, Nate Bargatze, the Tennessee kid, watch that on Netflix. Nice. All right, let's jump into what we've been reading. Uh, I read City of Thieves, which is a novel from David Benioff, who's one of the showrunners of Game of Thrones. This novel came out in 2008, and it has a really interesting premise. It's like a coming-of-age story that is set in uh, World War II during the Siege of Leningrad, and it's about two um, like young Russian guys who are basically... Um, like thrown into prison and pulled out like by their own people and pulled out because this uh, Soviet officer needs a dozen eggs because his daughter is getting married and he tasks them with going out and finding these eggs, which seems like an impossible task because of, um, you know, the, the city is under siege. It's really, really tough to find good food there. So they have to like, you know, escape beyond the borders of this city and go out sort of into the Russian countryside and try to find these eggs in like whatever it is, three or four days or something like that. And uh, the implication is that if they don't do it, they're going to be killed. Um, so it, it's a pretty like high stakes story. It's um, it, it's interesting to me to like look at David Benioff's work um, before Game of Thrones, because that's what I, you know, clearly associate him with the most, even though he wrote, uh, I think he wrote The 25th Hour, and he was also, like, one of the screenwriters of some of those early X-Men movies, like, uh, I think he, he wrote, um, X-Men Origins Wolverine, or is one of the credit, credited writers on that movie, um, so it's just interesting to sort of, like, go back to something that is just his, uh, and not, like, an adaptation of something else, it's, like, a fully, I guess, original, um, story and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Has anybody else here heard of this book or read this book by any chance? Nobody. Okay, I have not. Uh, yeah, I would recommend it. It's um, there are a couple little patches in here that are uh, 
kind of rough uh, in terms of like the violence, especially violence towards women, because um, you know it, it's. I guess that's a <laughs> maybe you could say that that's a theme in Benioff's work, but. Uh, it, it didn't strike me as egregious as uh, something like Game of Thrones, but uh, because there, you know, it's dealing with uh, a historical time period where things like this actually happened. Um, yeah. Anyway, there, there's a little bit of a, a tough stretch in there, but um, overall, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I would actually like to see them try to adapt this to, uh, I don't know, the big screen, small screen, whatever. They have that big deal with Netflix, uh, Benioff and, and Weiss. Um, so maybe they could uh, turn this into a, a TV show or something. I, th- I feel like the um, the lead characters definitely have a good enough like sort of dynamic relationship where it would be fun to watch them um, on screen together. So, uh, Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, I read The Big Goodbye by um, Sam Lawson, and it's, it's all about the making of Chinatown, the movie Chinatown. And... Uh, I loved it. Um, I, you know, I, I, tr- I like reading, you know, stuff about movies and, uh, this is all about both the making of Chinatown and also sort of like the end of the, the new Hollywood era, which sort of like, like uh, Chinatown came out right around the time, like Jaws was coming out and, uh, you know, movies, you know, that, you know, ushered in the, the blockbuster age and, and the high concept age, like near the end of the book. They start talking about uh, Don Simpson, who was a, a notorious producer who did a lot of cocaine and eventually died because he did so much cocaine. And uh, so uh, it's a, it's interesting and kind of a depressing book because this is sort of like the end of the era where movies were were you know uh, being made by artists who were trying to do something original and different and uh, not really worried about you know. Uh, big explosions and stuff like that. So uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I finished it in like a, a week. It's a, it's a very easy read. Um, so if you're you're interested in you know Hollywood stories and, and books about the makings of movies and uh, it, it, this is a pretty good read. It's called The Big Goodbye. I've never really looked into the history of uh, of the making of the movie Chinatown. Was there any like one particular story about the making of that movie that jumped out to you that you maybe had never heard of before? I mean, I honestly didn't know. You know, I've seen Chinatown, but I didn't know a whole lot about the making of it, to be honest. So pretty much everything in the book seemed new to me. And, um, you know, it's the one thing I found very interesting is a lot of people consider uh, Robert Towns script to be like one of the best screenplays ever written. And this book makes the very convincing argument that his script was actually kind of bad. And it was Roman Polanski who made the movie what it is. And there's like kind of like a weird irony in that because you know screenwriting books about like what screenplay you should emulate all point to like chinatown as the example when in in truth the the script was not as great as people thought it was thought it was and it was really polanski's like reshaping of it that made it what it is today so sorry sorry robert town (laughs) interesting uh hc what have you been reading uh, well, I finished reading Cersei. Uh, you guys may, may remember from last week's episode in which I talked about just starting the book, and I finished it within the span of like a week. I really enjoyed this book. It was a real page turner, as you could tell, um, and just a really breezy read. This is the book by Madeline Miller, and it is the revisionist um retelling of the goddess Circe, who uh, you may remember from the Odyssey as the witch who turns uh, Odysseus's men into pigs. And I really liked that um, this retelling of the story, it wasn't, didn't take too much of a revisionist brush to uh, the story of this, of this uh, goddess. Um, But it kind of, it, it actually sticks quite closely to the Greek myths. As far as I remember, I remember like really enjoying, especially when I was young, uh, Greek myths in general, because of how of the soap opera drama of it all, because it, it made a lot of sense to me that a lot of the the blights and the unpredictable uh, disasters of the world were could be like traced back to gods and their petty fights, because it just felt like so much more unpredictable and, um, uh, you know, felt like, yeah, unpredictable, unpredictable and, um, like that the that the forces are just based off of some uh, spats between these petty petty gods. So yeah, um, yeah I uh, I really like Cersei and um, it 
it does, you know, tell the broad strokes of uh, the the goddess as she's like known in mythology, but it also brings um, some lesser known sort of deities into the story and like is allowed to make make more creative like liberties with the story in, in doing so. Um, but yeah, it's great. It has like a really sympathetic um, feminist approach to her character. She's kind of like this pure um, and innocent uh, goddess who has always sort of um, uh, idolized her father, Helios, the god of the sun or the titan of the sun, and uh, is kind of beaten down by life and um, and by the generation. So it's really interesting how that happens. And I, I really enjoyed this book. So that's Circe by Madeline Miller. Excellent. Uh, let's jump into what we've been watching. Jacob and Brad, you guys watched The Invisible Man. Uh, Jacob, what do you think about it? Uh, this movie's outstanding. Uh, it's exactly what I wanted out of a uh, new take on this material. I mean, as, as much as I'm a big fan of the original H.G. Wells novel, as much as I love the Universal Classic from the 30s, uh, this is such a modern... Uh, a, a, this movie can only be made now. You could not have made this version you know, back in the 30s for a number of reasons. Uh, but it feels so modern and relevant and timely. It uh, takes the idea of the Miserable Man and uh, transforms it into a story about... Um, Victims of abuse not being believed, about gaslighting, about uh, 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 it's just a really thoughtful, scary movie that uh, really plays with the idea of the Invisible Man is is not like it's a literal tormentor, but also as a metaphorical one. The idea of uh, the Invisible Man being a literal Invisible Man, but also the you know abuser who is always hovering in someone's mind long after they think they've escaped them, and. It's just a really fun, crowd-pleasing, tense, exciting, violent horror movie that also carries a lot of like genuinely thoughtful, relevant weight to it. And this is what uh, Blumhouse and possibly Lee Wanell, since he signed a deal with Universal to make more horror movies for them, if this is what they want to do with more, you know, Universal horror characters going forward, uh, bring them into 20th century, sorry, 21st century, in this kind of way, I am excited to see it. I, I'm really happy with how this turned out. Uh, Brad, I know you're not as much of a fanboy for Universal Horror as I am, so what did you think? Uh, yeah, that's true. I'm not. I, um, I've definitely se- I haven't seen all of the Universal Classic uh, movies, but I've seen most of the big ones. Uh, Invisible Man is, is one of the best, and uh, I agree with everything you said. This is such a, a fantastic, uh, modern, refreshing way to tell that story and make it relevant uh, to our times and to the issues, uh, you know, facing uh, women, especially in our society. Um, but I, I also just love uh, what Lee Wanell does um, as far as his filmmaking style in this. The way he uses negative space and near silence and lingering shots <laughs> makes this movie genuinely terrifying and super suspenseful. I, I honestly can't remember the last time that I was so on the edge of my seat for so long and just listening to you know every single sound and paying attention to every single inch of you know the screen in front of me uh it is an absolute like treasure of 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 a horror movie and i actually i was having a conversation with my parents afterwards because they they uh, really wanted to see it after hearing how good it was and they kept talking about it like it was a thriller and i was like i was like no i'm pretty sure this is just like a horror movie you know and so they but like for them they think of horror in such 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 a traditional way as far as like uh you know slashers and and monsters and ghosts and that kind of thing um so it, it sparked an interesting conversation um but yeah i i absolutely loved this movie and, and the score man is, out, is outstanding i definitely want to get it uh on vinyl thankfully mondo just released it and yeah this was uh, i could not have been more happy with how this movie turned out man. yeah the thriller versus horror debate is one of my no no offense to your parents brad but it just drives me up a wall i think people who uh uh i, I feel like people try to justify liking a horror movie by calling it a thriller sometimes. I remember when It came out, people come saying, it's not a horror movie because I liked it. Which yeah, is, uh, uh, <laughs> it's very frustrating. But um, in this case, The Invisible Man is quite literally a slasher villain in, in the original incarnation and here. So one point Brad, zero points Brad's parents. <laughs> yeah, take that, Mom and Dad. Uh, all right, so I, um, I watched The Pharmacist, which is a true crime series on Netflix. I know Chris talked about this. You liked this show quite a bit. Uh, it's a four-episode series, um, like a, a true crime documentary about this guy named Dan Schneider, who is a pharmacist in a really, really small town in uh, Louisiana. And it is all about him um, trying to figure out who killed his son. And uh, it's, it basically turns into him like obsessing over 
um, a, a pill mill that is in the area, which is like uh, this woman who just writes prescriptions for oxycodone. And um, it, it turns into this massive thing and the DEA gets involved and it, it the story sort of spirals out of control. Um, I, I think I, I watched this show with my wife who went to pharmacy school and like has a, a doctorate in pharmacy. <laughs> so she really enjoyed this too. She said that uh, a lot of the information is like super accurate, which is not always the case when people are, when movies and TV shows, uh, you know, depict pharmacies and, and pills and things like that. Um, the only thing I think that she was like sort of a little bit um, not turned off by, but but thought of as maybe like a slight detriment is that uh, a lot of the show seems to um, make it seem like these revelations that this car- this guy Dan Schneider are having uh, are brand new, and that's not necessarily the case. Like this this information has been out there for a long time. Like um, you know the idea of uh, of pill mills and these doctors who are writing these prescriptions and just making tons and tons of money. Um, you know, at the, uh, while sacrificing their morals and, and, uh, releasing all of these drugs into society and, and, you know, feeding addicts and all that kind of stuff. Um, the show sort of paints it like, uh, you know, this is like, he's blowing the roof off of this whole thing, even though the roof has been blown off. Like the, the DEA actually ended up knowing about the case, um, that he was, you know, the doctor that he was trying to investigate for a long time. So, uh, anyway, I think it's a really good watch. Um, if some of the, if you don't know anything about like the, uh, the opioid epidemic in America, um, this is a great, uh, uh, way to dive into this story because it it sort of grounds it in a personal connection like you hear um because Dan Schneider uh, his son was murdered you and because he as obsessively records everything you get this really interesting window into um a family in like th- at their lowest point like he records uh conversations that he's had with his wife and and daughter like right at the time when when their son uh when their family member was killed and like it's heartbreaking to listen to like these these um i don't know it's like this window into grief that i've never really experienced before chris do do you did that uh, impact you as much as it did me and when you think back to watching the pharmacist uh yeah i'm I'm right there with you on that yeah definitely man yeah it's uh it's like i said it's only four episodes and if you're even remotely interested in anything that i said i think the the show um does a really good job at at sort of uh painting the picture for you so it's very good it's on netflix right now uh i also watched or rewatched the aristocats which is a movie that i had not seen in a long long time uh when my wife and i uh, subscribed to disney plus we went through and just added a bunch of movies to our queue like uh, animated classics and stuff that we had not seen for decades Uh, and this was one of them it's a pretty short movie and we were just like you know on a lazy afternoon looking for something to watch and uh, decided to watch the aristocats it's not really that good of a movie i don't know if you guys really remember this movie or not but i i mostly remember it from i think i saw it once or twice when i was a kid and remember thinking that it was very very slow even back then and watching it now that is definitely confirmed like i can't imagine watching this as a kid because it's so slow this movie's from i think 1970 and um man it just it moves along at a snail's pace um it is so far removed from the sort of like uh dynamic plotting of that that i know of from like the 90s style disney movies um also the plot is a little weird so it's about this this uh, woman who has a bunch of cats that she really really loves and the uh, servant in the house um overhears that uh, as this woman is drawing up her will she's going to leave all of her earthly possessions to these cats and then underneath the cats like after the cats die then the servant is going to inherit all of her wealth and this drives the servant to insanity basically he's like i can't believe that these cats are are uh you know ahead of me in line so to speak so he basically decides to kidnap and and murder the cats which like even if you accomplish that mission the woman who actually has all of the wealth is still alive so like theoretically she would just get more cats and maybe leave it to them uh also if you wait for the woman to die and then you know the somehow uh 
a legal body transfers all this wealth to kittens. Um, it it doesn't really take that long for cats to die, so maybe just wait it out. I don't know. I, I, like the premise of this movie, I found to be pretty baffling as an adult. A lot of it just went over my head as a kid, but. Uh, yeah, that's the Aristocats. It's on uh, Disney Plus right now. The music's okay. Um, there's a little bit of some racist stuff in there, too. Uh, I think a lot of the Disney Plus movies say, like, cultural depictions uh, are probably outdated on this, but um, I know that I think we've written an article about, like, why it would be really nice to have uh, a film historian or somebody who actually knows what they're talking about to, um, like, maybe introduce these movies and, and provide a little bit more uh, cultural context for the world in which they were released. So uh, that'd be nice. But, um, yeah, anyway, that's the Aristocats. It's on Disney Plus right now. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I finally started watching the final episodes of Bojack Horseman. I've been putting it off because I didn't want the show to end. And I know that the ending will devastate me uh, emotionally and because I'll be out of Bojack. So I've been watching, like, one episode at a time, taking my time, really absorbing it. And probably the right approach because each episode is devastating and is really hitting me hard. Uh, I'm halfway through the last remaining episode. They, they added the last eight episodes. And um, the episode I want to dwell on for a second is the second of the new batch uh, called Good Damage. Uh, it is the most I've ever been seen <laughs> by an episode of television. It is about a uh, one character's uh, struggle with uh, depression, uh, with her medication, uh, and with trying to find a creative outlet. And the title of the episode, Good Damage, refers to the idea of um, the bad things you've dealt with, the horrible things that have happened to you. Uh, if it's good damage, it means you can translate it into creativity and make it worthwhile and uh, transform it into something that will benefit you and others. And it, and it's it ends up having this depressive struggle uh, on and off medication about whether or not her damage is good enough to be to make her interesting. And it's I found it like hard to watch because I related so much to what was going on on the screen, uh, which I think Bojack does well. It does a really good job of putting a bunch of personalities together who all tend to reflect and depict uh, all kinds of neuroses, and uh, Good Damage was one that really messed me up. Uh, Chris, not spoilers since we're not, I haven't seen the back half of the season, uh, did Bojack deliver for you in the end? I actually have not finished the, the final few episodes. I'm kind of like putting them off, so I don't I don't. I have not finished it yet, so no. <laughs> and I also finished my rewatch of The Office. I talked about this, uh, the last water cooler, but yeah, uh, The Office ends really well. Like the finale uh, manages to pull off being incredibly sweet and optimistic for a show that began as anything but. Uh, you know, a show that was very cynical about its workplace and very cynical about its characters' futures, ends up with everybody um, in really good places. I feel like it, it earns it. So as rough as those last two seasons are at times, I think the final stretch of episodes really do pull it off and really do uh, make you remind, remind you why The Office is a show that people are still getting into bidding wars over who gets it on which streaming services. So uh, Office, still great. Um, I don't know if I'll follow, you know, subscribe to Peacock for it, uh, but I'm glad I rewatched it before it leaves Netflix. I uh, come from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, has anyone else seen the new season yet? Or at least the first yes. five episodes of it? Oh, man, it's so yep, good. I've been watching. Yeah, um, I really, really like uh, Vanessa Bayer's character. I feel like she's essentially been written off at this point, uh, but I was really hoping that they would find a way to keep her on. But, uh, man, I think they've shaken up in all the right ways. Uh, Holt's in a really fun position this season, Captain Holt. Uh, and and how has this show remained so consistent? I mean, I'm looking back, like, you know, it's sister shows, like, you know, like Parks and Recreation or, you know, The Office, which had all their highs and lows. But seven season in, it, it still hasn't lost a step. I, I'm... I'm very happy about that. Uh, and finally, uh, Inception's on Netflix. I watched Inception for the first time in maybe seven or eight years. Uh, guys, Inception's really good. Uh, it's, not my favorite, it's not my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. That's Dunkirk, but it's, it's up there. And but watching it again years later, what really stands out, the one negative thing, is that I feel like there's one studio note here. I feel like Warner Brothers gave Christopher Nolan carte blanche to do whatever he wanted after Dark Knight. But you looked at the screenplay and said, okay, you go, but you got to make sure all the dumb people understand what's going on at all times so about 33 percent of the dialogue in this movie is people restating and restating what we already know just to make sure anybody can know what's going on in a given moment uh so it's really strange to see a movie so smart uh in terms of its structure and plotting uh have to resort to dialogue that is actually very dumb just because I feel like it is catering toward people who maybe aren't paying full attention i'm curious anybody else who's seen inception recently remembers this am i wrong in, in criticizing dialogue for this I've I've never I you know I I definitely understand that complaint and I've I've heard it before it it never really 
I don't know. I never really bothered me that much. Cause just cause I figure like I knew why it was there. Like, like the reason you're saying. So I guess I like took that in consideration and it never really bothered me that much, but I definitely could see how that could be a problem, but I, I still, I still love the movie. All right. Uh, let's go to Brad. Brad, what have you been watching recently? Yeah, I actually haven't been on a water cooler in a long time. Uh, so I, I haven't included everything here, but I've included just some stuff and some of this stuff is, will feel old just because it, I haven't been around for a couple weeks. Uh, but I saw Birds of Prey. And, man, if you didn't go see this movie, I think you're missing out on something that is super fun. Uh, arguably, I think, the the best uh, DC Comics movie that takes place within this, this universe that has been created. Um, it's just Margot Robbie is embodying this character in the same way that Hugh Jackman did Wolverine and Robert Downey Jr. did as Iron Man. She, she's so good in this movie. I love how chaotic it is, uh, the the disjointed narrative, uh, because it's from her point of view, and the action sequences in this movie are outstanding. The soundtrack is just full of bangers. Um, I love this movie much more than I thought I would, because the trailers made it look like it was a mess. Um, And at at times, it does feel a little uh, crazy, Um, not to the point where it's hard to follow, but it, I just I just had a great time watching this movie, and I was I was really uh, taken aback with just how um, how much I enjoyed it. What else have you been checking out? Uh, I my girlfriend and I watched the uh, To All the Boys sequel. P.S. I still love you, and I I think that I like it more than the first movie, even though it's not quite as lively or funny. Um, it felt I don't know. It felt a little more genuine to me, and I felt like it leaned a little bit more towards John Hughes movies than even the first one did. Um, I, I don't know. I thought the performances were better. I, it felt a little less, I don't know, um, hokey to me. Did, did anybody else see this and feel the same way? Um, I liked it more than Ben, but I don't know if I'd say I like it more than the first one. I think it's a pretty serviceable sequel, but I can see where it, cause it, it I feel like it, it tackles some more, mature themes than the first one does, which is very much like that meet cute rom-com. But this one talks about um, some of the insecurities that come from relationships, which I um, appreciated. Yeah, I agree. I also saw Sonic the Hedgehog, which was disappointing, to say the least. Um, I wasn't expecting it to be great, but some of the reviews said that it was pretty good for you know a family film, and I was just not impressed. Uh, Jim Carrey was... Um, not as zany or wild as I wanted him to be. I was hoping we were going to get a Jim Carrey that was more along the lines of the Riddler or the mask. And he's definitely being over the top, but just not as much as I, as I wanted. And there's just not very many clever lines. The, the one saving grace for this movie, I think, is Ben Schwartz is uh, so enthusiastic and such a good voice for Sonic. But just the, the logic of this movie and the low stakes and the action just didn't really give anything exciting. I just... I think it's really dumb to have a movie where your character can run at supersonic speeds, but he spends most of the movie in a car with James Marsden, even though there's supposedly a, a ticking clock or something for him to get his rings back. I don't know. Uh, it just it felt like a real misfire to me, and, and it, that's disappointing. But, you know, they teased the sequel, so maybe it'll get better. I, I don't know. I, I just... <laughs> What about all that Olive Garden product placement, though, Brad? Oh, my God. Seriously, what was up with that? I don't even there was know. There like three Olive Garden mentions. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it was that was supremely weird. But uh, you finally saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire, though, right? I did. I finally did. There's this great theater uh, down in Miami in Little Havana called the Tower Theater. It's owned by Miami-Dade College, and it's very much an indie art house theater. And I was uh, very happy to see this movie playing there. Went out of my way to go see it. Uh, it was the one movie I saw that I was on vacation. And it is very, very good. Um, I'm not sure that it would have made my top ten just because it's one of those movies where I'm happy that I saw it, but it's not a movie I, I feel compelled to like, oh, man, I'm in the mood to watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire right now. But there's so much uh, intimacy and passion in this movie. And I, it's just so such a titillating romance and uh it's beautifully shot um i just yeah i, I honestly can't, can't really say anything more than that like I, I feel like when ben's talked about this movie he's um obviously done it much, much more justice and he loved it too but i i very much enjoyed this movie and was quite uh enthralled with it and it's uh it's 
one that you should absolutely seek out. I don't think it's going to be for everybody, but it uh, it definitely is one that packs a, a punch to the heart, I guess you would say. What do you think about the very end, Brad? Because I know that I was arguing hard for that final shot to be, you know, included in our, you know, best movie moments of the year and all that. And you were, I remember you saying like, ah, I don't know if I can support this fully because I haven't seen it yet. But now that you've seen it, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, if I had seen it, I probably would have helped push for it too because yeah, it, uh, it's the just the way it focuses in. Um, you know, I, I won't say what you know what what it is or what happens or anything, but yeah, it is a very powerful, moving shot, and it's uh, a great a great way to end that movie. Awesome. And then you've been checking out some TV stuff too. Yeah, I've been watching uh, Lego Masters, which is Fox's reality competition show featuring some of the best uh, like Lego builders from uh, around the country, and it's been pretty fun. It's it started off a little shaky just because it felt like they had too many contestants and trying to like get all their stories in there and then also focus on their building skills and that kind of thing. Um, it's gotten a little bit better in that regard as the pool of contestants has dwindled down, um, but it's still it has too much of this reality show manufactured drama that's really frustrating me and i wish that they would focus more on the actual you know building and uh how they're pulling off certain things because they're pulling off some of these like lego engineering feats that like i want to know how they're doing these things and how um like how they know just to do them from scratch you know they're not following any directions they don't have anything in front of them that tells them how to build you know lego technic mechanisms to have a, a moving roller coaster or a ferris wheel or anything like that and I wish that they would focus more on that. But, you know, it, it's reality competition, so they have to manufacture it some way. Uh, Will Arnett is a great host. He's having – he has so much fun, like, kind of – he leans into it in a hammy way that is mocking without being a jerk about it. And he's just – he's the perfect personality for something like this. Uh, there's plenty of Lego Batman references abound, and he, he has fun talking to a lot of the contestants. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, – I've been enjoying it. And as, as a Lego nerd, it's, uh, it's a fun watch. All right, HT, what have you been checking out recently? So I watched this movie called System Crasher, which is a German drama that I stumbled upon um, on Netflix uh, recently. And this is a film that was actually had uh, got a lot of acclaim when it premiered at, I think, the Berlin Film Festival, a couple other film festivals last year. And um, it tells the story of a nine-year-old girl named Benny who is just kind of... um, uh, juggled around the foster care system uh, in uh, Germany and uh, is generally just very anti-social and violent and hard to control and um, is and despite all of the the attempts by the aid workers who are trying to get her to settle and who are doing the utmost of their ability to um, to help her, it really does seem like she's a lost cause. And um, this is a, a real gem of a movie. I had. Um, I hadn't really heard of it before I, before I found it on Netflix. And it's directed by Nora F- Fingscheidt, uh, who I definitely mispronounced, who had been doing mostly documentaries up until this film and um, had done lots of research into the child welfare system in, in Germany and uh, how it can help and um, hurt people. And it's really interesting. I learned a lot about the, the child welfare system in Germany uh, through this film, and it was really fascinating. And um, it occurred to me while I was watching it that this could very much be a film that feels very preachy about, you know, social issues and how the system can fail its children and stuff, but it doesn't feel at all like that. It's a very compassionate and sympathetic film that really, that paints this um, uh, real genuine and full picture of all the characters uh, inside it, including Benny, who is a really awful child, but you feel sympathy and and empathize with her despite everything that she puts uh, all these aid workers through, um, as well as the aid workers who um, are kind of, you know, they're just doing their jobs and they do it uh, as best they can. But, you know, sometimes the system can get in the way of actually helping this girl in the way that she needs in terms of just like unconditional love. And uh, it's a really, really fantastic film. I was surprised by um, by this movie. It reminded me a lot of um, when I saw The Florida Project, which uh, deals with some of those big overarching social issues, but does it from a perspective that feels really innocent um, and um, compassionate, and the System Crasher does much of the same. So that is System Crasher, and that's uh, streaming on Netflix right now. And you also saw a Hitchcock classic on the big screen? 
Yeah, so um, I saw North by Northwest in a special big screen showing at the IPIC, uh, IPIC Theater in Fulton Market. I'd never been to this theater before. Uh, apparently, it's a very swanky sort of dine-in theater, somewhat similar to the Alamo, but a little fancier, um, and without the convenience of lights underneath the table, so I was kind of struggling to order things, which was a little annoying, but the movie itself was great. Um, I had actually seen North by Northwest uh, in college, um, and I hadn't liked, I liked it, but it wasn't my favorite Hitchcock film. I had, um, I, I had kind of acknowledged the place that it had in history, but I was kind of like, oh, it was fine. Um, but I do think that it was as a result of me, of the class, um, which was a Hitchcock class, uh, going through a line of Hitchcock wrong man films and then ending it with North by, by Northwest, which is kind of the culmination of his wrong man films. And I think as a result of that, I had seen a lot of Hitchcock's kind of very similar movies, um, like, you know, The Lady Vanishes of 39 Steps in which the wrong man gets captured and he gets caught in this espionage plot and there's a MacGuffin and everything. And it, it kind of became very predictable and wrote. And by the time we got around to North by Northwest, I was like, this is the same thing, um, rehash with a bigger, um, set pieces and bigger production design. So I wasn't that impressed, but seeing on the big screen is amazing. Wow, I was completely turned around by with my opinion on this film. Um, so North by Northwest stars Cary Grant as a, um, a businessman, uh, I think an advertising man actually, uh, a lot of mad men and its aesthetic takes a lot of inspiration from North by Northwest, especially his Cary Grant suit, um, which is very iconic in this film. But he plays an ad man who uh, gets embroiled in this uh, espionage plot when he's mistaken for a government spy by a um, a uh, villain. I can't. I don't really know what uh, James Mason's role was, but like his his character was playing was some kind of villain. Anyway, <laughs> uh, he he uh, ends up being pursued by this man and um, uh, almost murdered several times and ends up kind of picking up a lot of these government uh, spy tricks and tries to find out uh, who the person he's been mistaken for is and uh, it eventually gets involved with the um, the villain Van Damme's uh, mistress played by Eva Marie Saint. And um, yeah, this is excellent, excellent film. Some of the set pieces, which, you know, famously the crop duster scene, the climax takes place on Mount Rushmore, uh, really play so well on the big screen and honestly hold up against some modern day action sequences. Like it's stunning. And the, I, um, I was so happy to see this on the big screen and just see it. Like, I think it was a restoration or something because it looked really gorgeous in Technicolor. So, um, yeah, North by Northwest, really excellent espionage film. And, uh, with Cary Grant turning in such a fantastic performance, I think it is kind of criminally, um, underrated how, fantastic Harry Grant is at uh, balancing some of the more comedic aspects of this role with you know, the dashing espionage parts, because people always remember him as being very suave and um, smooth. But he, this movie would not work if not for his some more of some of his more Pratt folly moments um, at the beginning of the film. So yeah, North by Northwest. Good movie. That Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> knows how to direct a movie, guys. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed out Cary Grant too, because I, I mean, I just feel like modern audiences don't appreciate him as much as we should. Like, I, I, I have not seen all of his movies, and I need to go back and, and sort of rectify that. I know he made a ton of stuff, but um, I've seen most of his classics, and he is just so good. And I, I remember seeing North by Northwest when I was a kid for the first time and being a little confused at the plot because Cary Grant was so like, calm, you know, cool, calm, and collected that I was like, wait a second, is he actually, like, some sort of double agent or something here? But, you know, he really is just, like, a regular guy caught up in this this grand scheme, but he reacts so coolly to a lot of it that I remember being confused the first time I saw it. But I, I think I talked about it on The Water Cooler maybe, like, last year or something and, and really, really enjoyed it. So I'm glad that your uh, your opinion of it has turned around a little bit. Seeing it on the big screen sounds like a pretty awesome experience, so... Um, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I guess let's move into what we've been eating. Brad, you have been on vacation, so I'm sure you've been eating a ton of stuff, right? This is all me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so as far as my vacation eats, I will say that I had some of the best burgers of my life. Whenever I go somewhere, I try to seek out what some of the uh, like the best burgers in the area are. And uh, the Miami area and Fort Lauderdale area, which I was in for a little bit, uh, had some of them. Uh, I'll just name 
the places that I went to that had these good burgers, it was uh, Gilbert 17th um, Street Bar and Grill, a place called Amor de Miami, and Burgermeister. Uh, the best one that I had out of those three was definitely at Gilbert 17th Street Bar and Grill. Uh, they have very, um, I guess, uh, unique burgers. The one that I had there that was uh, fantastic was uh, a burger that also had uh, salami, fried queso blanco, and a chipotle cilantro mayo. Uh, and it was just outstanding. The, the mix of all the flavors was incredible, and I would love to go back and try one of their other burgers. Um, and then I also, um, I didn't have this as my meal, but my girlfriend had one of the best steaks that she has ever had. And I had a taste of it and could confirm as much at this place called Havana Harry's. Um, it was just a deliciously juicy, tender and, uh, well marinated and seasoned steak that had this incredible, uh, chimichurri sauce on it. So if you're ever in the Miami area, go to Havana Harry's or check out those burger places and you will not be disappointed. Awesome. Uh, What else have you been eating? Yeah, so then on the more uh, normal scale, uh, non-vacation things, I tried the new Wendy's breakfast menu. Not the whole menu, mind you, but just a couple of the things uh, on it. It uh, It's available everywhere now. It started on March 2nd. We actually were able to get a little bit early while we were on vacation in Miami. And so I, uh, my girlfriend and I split. We tried the breakfast baconator and the uh, maple bacon uh, chicken croissant. And both are really good. The, uh, what's great about the breakfast baconator is they don't use just their, their regular burgers they have at Wendy's. They actually use a sausage patty, so it makes it that much more uh, breakfast-esque. And it has uh, an egg on it and cheese and a also a Swiss cheese sauce, which I'm not really usually a fan of Swiss cheese. It's a little too uh, strong for my taste, but it doesn't really have uh, that strong of a taste on, on the ba- breakfast baconator. And then the, the maple chicken, uh, bacon chicken croissant was also very good. It's this perfect mix of savory and sweet. And the one thing I will also give Wendy's huge credit for is having delicious new breakfast potatoes, uh, at, uh from a fast food location. Uh, it's not just like a traditional hash browns. They're, uh, potato wedges that are, uh, crispy, uh, extremely well seasoned, and I, they're honestly, I think that they're better than most of the fast food breakfast potatoes uh, that are available out there. Brent, are, I'm looking at, ahead at, at what you're about to talk about. Are you about to tell me that you've never tried cherry vanilla Coke before? No, because it's new. Oh, it is. Wait. Yeah. What? They've had cherry Coke and they've had vanilla Coke, but they've never had cherry vanilla Coke. Wait, oh. Are you sure? I swear that they've had hmm. that combo before. Yeah, it no, sounds it's, so it's, familiar. It's, it's, I think that maybe what you're thinking of, I, I think that there's a cherry vanilla Dr. Pepper. That That is definitely true. Yeah, I'm looking up right. Yeah, there's a cherry vanilla Dr. Pepper, so I think that's oh. what you're thinking of. Okay, yeah, but, that, so yeah. cherry vanilla Dr. Pepper rules, by the way. If anybody is out there looking for, you know, a, a, a new spin on an old classic, like, that's the way to go. But what did you think about cherry vanilla Coke? Uh, it's it's pretty good. I, I don't think it's quite as good as cherry vanilla Dr. Pepper, um, but it is, is it is very tasty. I personally, I think I prefer the cherry Coke and the vanilla Coke individually to cherry vanilla Coke, but it's it's still pretty good. Um, I ha- I've only had it out of a bottle. I haven't had it out of, out of a can yet, and typically I prefer um, soft drinks, especially Coke products, out of a can as opposed mm-hmm. to a bottle. It, just, it usually just tastes better. Yeah, uh, So Yeah, so I think that I, I need to seek out cherry vanilla Coke in a can and see uh, how it compares. It just um, seemed really- like that, like it, it would have been something on those um, those drink machines where you have like you know hundreds of combinations or whatever. Cherry vanilla Coke, man, it just sounds like it would have been around for a long time. It's weird that they're just now making it officially. Yeah, you, you you've always been able to get it from the the freestyle machines, but this is the first time like they've ever like bottled it and canned it as a as a flavor. So, um, and it's it's weird too because I I've been to the freestyle machines since they have released it, and like they they push it on the machines as if it's something new, and it's like, nah, you could have done this at these machines for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, to go, to go back real quick, uh, one of the th- things I forgot to mention in the Wendy's breakfast is they also have uh, what they're calling Frosty Chinos, which is an iced coffee that they put like a scoop of frosty ice cream in, and you can get either the chocolate or vanilla. Um, I tried the vanilla because I wasn't too sure on how, how the chocolate would go with the, the iced coffee, and um, they're not bad, except the problem is, is that you kind of have to wait for the ice cream to melt a decent amount before it starts giving actual flavor to the iced coffee. Because mm. otherwise you're just having basically what is an iced coffee float. Uh, and the, you, you basically ha- you're not really having a sweet flavored coffee until the ice cream actually gets a chance to mix in with it. Um, but once the ice cream is mixed in, 
uh, it does it does have a good flavor to it. Gotcha. And then uh, I, did, I tried a couple of their soft drinks, too, that are new. There's a new uh, Sprite Ginger that is out there, which is essentially like a Sprite version of ginger ale. Uh, it is. It's not quite as bold as regular ginger ale, but it, and the taste actually is more like a mild ginger beer, uh, and it's it's pretty good. Uh, it's available in both regular and uh, Sprite Ginger Zero, which which has the zero sugar and zero calories. So I haven't tried the zero one yet to see if it um, captures the same flavor, since Sprite is I think actually the only uh, quote unquote zero um, style Coke that actually tastes close to the regular version of the pop. Um, But the regular one is delicious. And then I I discovered while in Miami that there are different regions of the country that have uh, different flavors of regular soda pops. So in this case, Miami has a mango Fanta. And it's not available in my area because I've never seen it. So when I saw it, I lost my mind because A, I love mango flavor, and B, I like Fanta. So I've got one and tried it, and it is delicious. And I am furious that Coca-Cola refuse, refuses to provide it in my area. I even tweeted to Coca-Cola and asked them about it, and they direct messaged me and said, hey, where do you live? We'll see if it's nearby. And they're like, sorry, it's not nearby. And I was like, <laughs> damn, it, damn it, Coca-Cola. Why would you get my hopes up? Are you going to, like, order a case of it, <laughs> Brad? I'm not, I, I'm, I actually, I haven't even thought of that. I need to go look and see if it's easy to like order it. Cause I, I should stock up just so I can have it in my back pocket. If I'm ever getting a craving for some mango Fanta. Uh, they also, I didn't get to try this one because they only had it available in 12 packs down there. And I couldn't justify buying an entire 12 pack of soda while I was on vacation. Uh, but they have fruit punch Fanta down there too. So, uh, I'm, I'm kind of on the lookout to see if I can get a hold of that. And then, uh, there's a new, um monster ultra flavor there's actually two but i've only tried one uh, I, i'm not a big fan of energy drinks and i i rarely will have a monster energy drink even if i feel like i need caffeine the only one that i really enjoy is the mango loco flavor because it tastes like a sparkling mango juice and as i just said i love the mango flavor um and i've been, but i've been disappointed because the mango loco monster has tons of sugar in it and it's just not good for you to have on a regular basis uh, but Monster Ultra is their zero calorie, zero sugar version that uses sucralose instead of sugar, and it doesn't use aspartame either. And they finally came out with an ultra flavor called Fiesta that is a mango flavor, and it tastes about as close as you can get to Mango Loco uh, without using real sugar. So I'm very excited that they did this because uh, Mango Loco was a flavor that I just enjoyed and was disappointed that I could never have without just destroying my body with sugar. So this is a good alternative that I'm happy with. Uh, and hopefully it's it won't be temporary and will stick around for a while. Excellent. Uh, all right. So in the what we've been playing category, I want to uh, turn everyone's attention to the um, the music side of things. Well, not music, but more like podcast. Um, there's this podcast, a, a show, a radio show, whatever you want to call it, called The Session that is run by this guy named Christian James Hand, who is a DJ here in L.A., um, I had heard one of these segments on the radio a couple years ago, and the premise of this show is that he has found, I think they're called the stems of uh, classic songs, which are basically um, individual solo tracks of uh, really famous songs. So he'll have like just he'll be able to isolate just the drum track of a, a really famous song, and then you know just the bass, just the uh, vocals, um, just the lead guitar, just the rhythm guitar, keyboards, all that kind of stuff. And so each episode is devoted to one song, and he sort of breaks it all down and shows you um, you know how these songs were put together, and and lets you hear these individual parts and it really um is kind of a fantastic thing like i had never it's so rare to you know this is not something that like i have no idea how he does this um you know where where he acquires you know these these tracks uh if he has some sort of technology that allows him to do it that um not a lot of other people have there are some songs where you can find their stems online but this guy has like made a career of it uh, over the past few years anyway he does like live shows where he breaks down songs um, he has this radio show on 95.5 KLOS where he uh, he does it. Um, so anyway, the I, 
I was recommended this um, by a friend of my wife who was like, man, you got to check this out. And I remember hearing this guy, you know, I, I encountered it sort of in the wild on the radio one time and looked and, and couldn't find it. I think he broke down um, Boston's More Than a Feeling on the radio when I heard it. And I was like, man, this is awesome. I would love to hear more of this. And it turns out that you can hear more of it. So The Session is the name of the podcast or the show. And if you go to thesessiononair.com, you can you can find links to you know tickets and radio shows and all that stuff. Um, I, I really this guy just told me about it like last night or the night before, and I, I spent so much time listening to these episodes over the past couple days. They're really incredible stuff. So um, three of the episodes I listened to were about uh, Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young, Earth Wind Fire's Boogie Wonderland, and Alanis Morissette's You Ought to Know. And um, just to give you an example of the kind of stuff that you'll learn about when, you know, if you decide to listen to this, which I really, really recommend, even if you're like not crazy about pop music, there's so many different types of music that he uh, sort of turns his attention to. But um, on You Ought to Know, I had no idea that Flea and Dave Navarro from the Red Hot Chili Peppers were like the... uh, musicians who played on the record for you ought to know like if you and and the bass on on that song which i'd never really given a second thought to because i'm so every time i listen to it i'm so concentrating on alanis morissette and her incredible lyrical performance in that song is so awesome to listen to because it's it's so uh complicated and um totally unlike what you would think it would be you know if you if you think right now oh i kind of know what this song sounds like uh you will be completely blown away listening to those tracks isolated and and he can put together just a few tracks so you sort of hear the music without any of the lyrics and man it's it's really um an incredible thing so uh it's called the session and i would recommend it the only downside that i have to tell you is that because it's a radio show or, or airs as a segment on a radio show, I think it airs on um, uh, Frosty, Heidi, and Frank morning show. Uh, so the problem is that you get that sort of morning zoo radio style like over a lot of the music. So he's talking to a bunch of people in the studio and he's really the only one. If it was like a solo show, it would be perfect because I don't need, you know, him bouncing off of these other people. And the other people are in like full on morning show mode. So they're making like terrible jokes and like talking over each other. And, uh, you know, it's just like typical, the reason that everybody hates listening to morning radio, all of that is still present in this. And it's, it's, almost so overpowering that it's tough to to recommend because it's it's so much um but the novelty of being able to listen to these sort of track by track breakdowns is ultimately um more impressive and and more interesting to me and and makes me uh able to recommend it to people so i will just recommend it with that caveat that you're gonna have to put up with a lot of terrible jokes and a lot of um sort of eye-rolling comments uh there's this one part where one of the guys was like yeah, these hand claps in this song, like back in the day, did they do these live? And and the guy was like, yeah, there's actually, um, there was a machine, uh, a program back then called the Clap Trap. And like somebody would instantly interrupt and be like, Heidi, didn't they call you the Clap Trap back in college? And everybody would be like, bah, ha, ha, ha. and I'm like, oh my God, this is so stupid. I just want to hear the good stuff. I just want to hear this these tracks. So uh, anyway, it's called The Sessions and you can look that up on your podcasting uh uh, servers or what have you, or you can just go to the session on air.com. So, um, Brad, what have you been playing? Uh, I've played a couple video games a little bit recently. Um, I had a little bit extra time after I got back from vacation. So I hopped online and, uh, got on my, my Xbox for a little bit. And a friend of mine convinced me to take advantage of a deal they were having to get the, I think it's called the ultimate game pass through Xbox live. Uh, it's like 16 or $17 a month. And, uh, it's for playing Xbox Live, but it also gives you access to a bunch of games that you can download and play as long as you are subscribing to the Ultimate Game Pass. And it's because he wanted me to get online to try this game out called Sea of Thieves, which is uh, the best way to describe it is it's basically Grand Theft Auto, but with uh, pirates on the high seas. Uh, open world, you are a pirate, you have uh, guns and a sword and a ship and cannons and all this stuff, and you just sail the high seas going to different islands and places looking for treasure. Uh, because it's open world, you can uh, get in cannon fights with other ships at the sea. You can rob people and take their treasure and steal things from them. And I haven't gotten too deep into the game. I basically just started and went through the 
tutorial and kind of geared myself up and everything, but it's it's pretty cool so far. Um, it's I'm not sure how involved the gameplay actually is once you get into it and start trying to steal stuff and go on quests and things, but it's pretty fun. Um, and especially if you have actually have people to play with on live. Um, otherwise, I'm not the kind of person who likes to get online and team up with people that I don't really know for a game like this because uh, manning a ship yourself can be kind of difficult because you it requires you know steering and like manning the cannons while you're trying to steer the ship and that kind of thing. So you really need a crew to do it. So it's better if you have some friends to play with. But uh, it's pretty fun so far. As Jacob, have you played this at all? I know that you're you're a big gamer. I played a little bit of it. My main issue with it is that you, as you touched on, it requires a crew to be fun. You need three or four friends to play with. Um, I cannot imagine playing it strangers. I can't imagine playing it solo. And the quests themselves are occasionally a little bare bones. So it's game that kind of gives you a sandbox, but you get to make a lot of your own fun. You got to bring your own friends. You gotta inject a lot of their personality into it, and and uh, ma- and add your own chaos to like to the sandbox. It's, it's a game is good, but you really need to have like playdates with people on the regular in order to fully grasp it, understand it, and make and make fun with it. Because I tried playing it solo for a bit because I don't have a lot of uh, friends who who I can play online with, and that's just not the way to do it. Whereas the people I know who play it with like a regular group every Saturday have a great time. Um, Brad, I would recommend Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag, which sounds like um, very similar. It's an open world sort of pirate kind of thing where you can be out on the high seas and get into cannon fights and all of that kind of stuff and, and basically do whatever you want. But that's like a more of a solo experience. So if you're looking for something that sort of captures that vibe that doesn't require a big group of, of friends and I know that can be like logistically challenging to get a bunch of people involved, but maybe look that game up um, if it's part of that like package that you were talking about, that subscription thing so um good to know yeah uh and then uh for a fun solo experience i finally got around to trying out untitled goose game uh it's available now on xbox and playstation and it's part of the game pass so i downloaded it to give it a shot uh and it is just delightful fun being a mischievous goose and creating problems for the townspeople uh it, it gives you like this little checklist of things you have to do like uh, steal someone's keys or like drag drag stuff away and like uh, move it to a certain area and it's just just a fun uh, little little game that like is a really good way to pass the time it's I had a lot a pretty a pretty mellow just uh, you know gaming session just being this goose and causing problems <laughs> I was surprised I've been playing that a little bit too I've been surprised at how much um, at sort of like uh, how much it scratches that like brain teaser itch. Because there are yeah. there are certain things that are like very obvious, like oh you know go move this thing over to this section, and it like you can clearly see where they are and all that. But then there are some tasks that it asks you to do, where you really have to like sit there for a while and sort of puzzle it out and like figure out you know how exactly you know what sort of like um, complicated steps and, and order that you have to take to do certain things to achieve these goals. So um, it works as a, a brain teaser pretty well too. So yeah. Uh, all right, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash, uh, Slash Film Daily. You can find all of our work at SlashFilm.com. Uh, you can listen to this show published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send us your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns at peter at SlashFilm.com. And leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Ben. <sighs> yes, Jacob. This is normally a point in the show where I'd open up the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, reposts, cost equips, and implied put-downs But Louis A. Safian and tell some very funny jokes. But you know what the funniest joke is? Uh, No. The funniest joke is not doing this when Peter's not here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Oh wow. Viciously evil. (laughs) What a twist. Well, uh, guys, we've done it, and I think I'm just going to end the episode now before Jacob changes his mind. (laughs)